So let's go to the Holy Land. Uh, let's go to uh, a place in Israel that some of you have been to, and it's a marvelous place, and it's called Caesarea. If you were in Israel, one of the natives would refer to it as Kazaria. Kazaria. It's named after Caesar, Augustus Caesar, hence Caesarea. Herod the Great named it that because Augustus Caesar, the Roman emperor, was Herod's patron. And so uh, Herod sort of returned the favor. Herod came to this place, Caesarea, and built it up in a magnificent way. We've seen already in prior sessions some of the genius uh, displayed by Herod. Uh, of course, his character left something to be desired, but he was an architectural and engineering genius. And one of the things he did here at Caesarea was to build a man-made harbor. Think about it. This is an ancient city located on the Mediterranean coast. Its shoreline is very smooth. There's no place for big ships to dock. And so in order to facilitate trade, you need a harbor. No problem, says Herod. And so he undertook this marvelous building project. He began it in 22 B.C., he worked on it for 12 years, and it was completed 12 years later. It's a massive man-made harbor in this place called Caesarea. It covers over 40 acres and could accommodate up to 300 ships. It was magnificent the way he built it. He had um, wood forms built, and they were submerged underwater containing two substances at least that we know of, one being lime and another was volcanic ash of a particular kind called, called pozzolana. He found it in Italy and had it brought back to Caesarea uh, by the tons. And he poured this combination of uh, Italian volcanic ash and lime into these wooden forms, and they formed the breakwaters for this man-made harbor at Caesarea. Now, the interesting thing about this combination uh, of uh, items is that when underwater, it would harden and form into a concrete-like substance. And so he sent divers, even way back when, underwater to sink these wooden forms containing these substances and then it gave way to concrete some of which you can even see today the water is quite clear and as you stand above it you can see the form of these breakwaters submerged underwater down to this very day in Herod's day it was by far the largest man-made non-natural port in the land. It was quite a fantastic thing. Well, there wasn't only this man-made harbor at this place called Caesarea. It was the seat of Roman government in the province of Judea. And as a result, it had all the things that Romans were used to. It had Roman baths. It had a marvelous theater. If you go there, many of you, you have uh, spent some time in this theater, and it looks out on the Mediterranean. And they had all kinds of uh, 
drama and plays and events in ancient days and still even today. And it also had a hippodrome, uh, a stadium designed for chariot races. It would seat upwards of 20,000 people. In fact, it was just unearthed uh, not too many years ago. I remember visiting there uh, one time at Caesarea and was just fascinated by all that I was seeing, but I saw no hippodrome because at the time it wasn't yet unearthed. A few years later, I went back and then I looked out uh, to the uh, right and I didn't expect to see what I saw, but here was this almost entirely unearthed uh, chariot race stadium here at Caesarea. Of course, you know, the Apostle Paul was imprisoned here, kind of under house arrest for two years before he uh, took the gospel to Rome. Because it was the seat of Roman government, there were many Roman politicians there, governors and prefects. Uh, and one you know of, his name was Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor responsible for sentencing the Lord Jesus to death uh, by crucifixion. Now, I mentioned Pontius Pilate to you, and I doubt there's a person in here who doubts the existence of Pontius Pilate. You've read the biblical record, and you have a high view of the scriptures, but you know, must know that that view is not held popularly uh, by many, even in the scientific community. And so the very existence of Pontius Pilate was something doubted and denied, really, for many, many years until a great discovery in June of 1961. It was made by Italian archaeologists in this area. They were digging and they came upon, uh, upon a limestone block on which was this inscription, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. Now we had evidence of the existence of Pontius Pilate. If you visit this place today, uh, Caesarea, you see a replica of the what's called the Pilate Stone. The original is housed in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Uh, when we visited there one time, we had to make a little bit of a deviation from our uh, normal tour. We tried to focus on sites of biblical interest, but some of the guys on our tour found out that the only full-sized golf course in all of Israel is here at Caesarea. And so we had to go by the golf course so these guys, priorities all messed up, uh, could go into this Israeli little golf pro shop and purchase some of these golf hats. Can you believe that, Roy? That's just something I could see you doing. Okay. So anyway, that is Caesarea. You know, at this magnificent place, Caesarea, there is no natural source of water. And so the Roman legions constructed a magnificent aqueduct in order to bring water in uh, from the uh, foothills of Mount Carmel. We went there a few weeks back to Mount Carmel, if you recall. And so it would be a distance of in excess of eight miles, and they would carry water, you see, from Mount Carmel here to Caesarea. And that very aqueduct 
is in existence today. Not all of it, but most of it. You could walk under it and on it down to this very day. Magnificent accomplishment of architecture and engineering and all the rest. Well, that is Caesarea or Khazaria. Well, there are many biblical events which occurred here, but I want to call your attention just to one which has always stuck out in my mind and perhaps yours as well. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 10, and I'll just make some selective reference to that rather lengthy chapter. If you'd like to look along, you're invited to Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, we're going to read about a non-Jewish person of, uh, well, uh, renown down to this very day. Acts chapter 10 verse 1 tells us, at Caesarea, so now you know where it is, it's this coastal, ancient coastal city along the shores of the Mediterranean Sea built up by Herod the Great. At this place, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. Cornelius is not a Jewish name. In fact, he was a centurion. He was a military man, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Remember, I mentioned Caesarea was the seat of Roman government in the Holy Land at the time. And so it was not unusual at all to have uh, quite a number of Roman soldiers stationed there. This particular one was in charge of a cohort. In other, uh, he, uh, he was a, a centurion, uh, and that meant he was in charge of 100 soldiers, like century, 100. And he was not only not Jewish, he was a European. And specifically, he was an Italian. So you have this Italian soldier uh, stationed here at Caesarea. And we find out some more about him in the next verse. We're told he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, and he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Well, I have to tell you, he sure sounds like a Christian. He sure seems to be a saved man, but he was not. He was aware, for sure, of the existence of God, and he indeed had a respect for God, but he did not know God personally. Oh, he did many, many good things, but no matter how many good things he could pile up, they would never be sufficient to elevate him to a personal relationship with transcendent deity seated on high. His good Deeds could not establish a connection for him between himself and holy God. Folks, he did not know God personally. Cornelius was much, for sure. He was a good man. He was a military man. He was a moral man. He was a, a model man. He was a deeply religious man. But I tell you, he was, in spite of it all, a lost man. It's possible for this to be true. He was doing so much good 
But until he realized how much good Jesus Christ had done for him, he would remain a lost man. Make no mistake about it. Well, then something happened. Uh, through a series of God-orchestrated events, a man of an entirely different sort is going to uh, cross paths with him. That man is Simon or Peter. And he was not a European, uh, not an Italian, not a Gentile. He was an Orthodox Jew. And he lived by the laws of Orthodox Judaism. Peter did. He made claim to it. He was proud of it. He was an observant Jew. He lived by the law of Moses and also by the tradition of the rabbis, one of which was for sure not to have anything to do with the Gentile unless you had to. You surely wouldn't get too close. You surely wouldn't enter into that person's house because in that person's house, in the home of that Gentile, would be treif or non-kosher food. And by osmosis, you could be in contact with the food, you know, with the sausages and the ham and the <gasps> pork. Ooh, wash your mouth that with soap. And you could get Gentile cooties. So, so, so as an Orthodox Jew, you know, I'll tell you what Peter's notion was. I know this because I grew up in this background. Uh, Peter had this notion of us and them. And the us and the them, you got to sort of tolerate each other, but you don't really have to hang out. You surely don't want to live close to one another. You don't want to make any more contact than you have to. We be the us, they be the them. So you got two guys on the same planet at the same time who have nothing in common culturally, religiously, ethnically, historically. And oh, God's going to do a work that can only be attributed to him. Not civil rights legislation, not United Nations, not nothing. But just God bringing two people together who would otherwise have nothing in common. And so we're talking about Peter here, the Orthodox Jew. He is changing because he's being changed. He had an encounter, a rather dramatic encounter with his own Messiah. Jesus the Messiah came into him and was changing this Orthodox Jew from the inside out. So little by little, Peter's attitudes towards other people groups was changing. He was being transformed. God was going to use Peter for great ministry. But before great ministry happens outside of a person, great ministry has to first take place inside a person. And that's what's kind of taking place here. I hope you're changing and being transformed daily to be more like Christ. That's the evidence of salvation. Do you remember a guy named John Newton? He was a one-time slave trader. Boy, he was changed. He was transformed, converted by Christ in him, by Christ's grace. He's the one who wrote Amazing Grace. And one time John Newton said, I'm not what I might be. I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be, but I thank God 
I am not what I used to be. You see, Peter would say the same thing. Can you say that? Oh, I hope so. It means Christ in you, the hope of glory. You ought to be moving. I ought to be moving. We shouldn't be stuck and stagnant. Oh, no, we ought to be in the process daily of being more like Christ. Well, Peter was being transformed. He was being changed. He's learning that God has an intense interest in all kinds of people groups. And so a God-initiated change had taken place inside Peter, the Orthodox Jew, such that we read this in verse 34 of Acts 10. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. That's earth-shattering. Those are simple words, but they are profound. They sweep away any rational basis for prejudice towards another people group. They sweep away in one fell swoop. These simple words sweep away in one fell swoop. Any rational basis for a discriminatory attitude towards a people group other than one's own. You see, Peter discovered God's standard. He discovered that God shows no partiality. He doesn't favor one people group over against another. And Peter realized if this is God's standard, how dare I have a different one? I know prejudice and discrimination is part of the human condition, but perish the thought that it would be incubated and tolerated and accepted in the lives of the people of Jesus Christ. What happens out there is one thing. What happens in the household of God is an entirely different thing. We have just seen what God's standard is through the mouth of a fairly narrow, orthodox, prejudicial, discriminatory Jew named Peter. He said, oh, now I get it. God on high, who created all people, has no favorite people group. God is no respecter of persons, therefore how dare we be, you see? So this verse in one fell swoop tells me I don't have the option towards racism. <laughs> now I'm inclined towards it and so are you, fess up. That's how we make life livable, you see, us versus them. That's how we do it. We put people in categories. There's no room for it based on verse 34 because God's standard is no such categories. So I can't, uh, I can't choose a standard other than God's. Peter realized this, and so here's what he did. He told Cornelius and the others who happened to be gathered at the home of this Italian guy, this Gentile guy at Caesarea. They were gathered together there. Peter told them about Jesus. And he came into his house. Peter, the Orthodox Jew, good night, went into the home of Cornelius. It was filled with Gentiles. Oh, my goodness. And this Orthodox Jewish guy shows up. 
And, 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 and he tells him about Jesus. Look, look, verse 43. Here's what Peter said. It's real simple again. It's just so profound. To him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness. All the Jewish prophets. To him, to Jesus, all the Jewish prophets bear witness that everyone... Everyone means everyone. That's the most inclusive term known to humankind. Everyone. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter, in the home of this Gentile guy, in a crowd of other Gentiles, told them about Jesus. He didn't tell them about Judaism. (laughs) Because Peter was realizing, oh, you don't have to become like me. You you have to believe in Jesus. He he didn't tell them about Judaism. He told them about Jesus. Peter told them about Jesus, not religion. Peter told them about how good Jesus is. Not about how good they must be. And Cornelius and those gathered together in his household on this occasion believed and were saved. That's the way it works down to this very day. Cornelius, oh, he was a good man for sure. Cornelius, a good man, found forgiveness in Christ Jesus, the perfect God-man. And so Cornelius became the first European convert the first European recorded in the Bible to come to be embraced by, the first European to come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And now Peter, the Orthodox Jew, and Cornelius, the Italian military guy, are brothers. Doesn't God have a sense of humor? Holy Toledo. Yeah, I tell you what Peter would say. You try my matzo balls. And Cornelius would say, and you try my meatballs. <laughs> it's a work of God. It cannot be explainable in any other way. Except the Lord Jesus has destroyed the barrier of the dividing wall. And made all those who call upon his name part of the forever family. In spite of our wonderful cultural, ethnic, racial Gender and age differences. Fantastic. Welcome the differences. But with Christ in common, don't make more of them than we we ought to. So here's the life lesson that I choose to remember when I think of Caesarea. The life lesson from Caesarea, it's simple. God has no favorites. Let me develop this just for a few more moments. God has no favorites. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, we're told that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we're told, furthermore, in Genesis, that the nations of the world came, emanated in interesting ways from these three, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so, from Shem comes uh, uh, Arab peoples and Jewish peoples. Shem, Semites. So, Arabs and Jews come from Shem. And then we're told that from Ham came African peoples. And then we're told from Japheth came European peoples. Now the book of Acts, 
Move with me past Genesis, a few centuries, many centuries, to the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us that God has no favorites and that everyone who believes in him has received forgiveness of sins. So, in Acts chapter 8, we have the conversion of a descendant of Ham, the uh, man from Ethiopia. Ethiopia being a beautiful country in northern Africa. Remember, he made his way up to Jerusalem to seek God, and he found the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Acts chapter 8, a descendant of Ham is converted. Acts chapter 9, we have the conversion of a descendant of Shem, Saul, or Paul, of Tarsus, a Jew. Acts chapter 8, the conversion of an African man, descendant of Ham. Acts chapter 9, the conversion of a Jewish man, descendant of Shem. And here, Acts chapter 10, we just reviewed it. We have the conversion of Cornelius, a European, an Italian, a descendant of Japheth. And so what we see is that in this marvelous holy land that we have been spending time looking to, where the gospel first went forth, we see God's willingness to forgive Africans and to forgive Europeans and to forgive Arabs and to forgive Jews and to forgive you and me. Because God has no favorites. People are very different, but the same. It's very interesting. We're very different, and yet what we have in common is a shared need for cleansing. We all, though we be different, need God in us. And God desires to be in each of us. He has no respect to a particular life. He's not partial. He has no favorites. He desires to inhabit the life of African people and European people and Jewish people and Arab people and you and me and everybody. We're different but the same. See, when it comes to sin and the need for salvation, we have it in common. All have sinned. Therefore, all need a savior from the penalty of it. We all have the same creator. Hence the irrationality of racism. We all have the same creator and we all need the one and only Savior. So demographic differences notwithstanding languages and cultures and all the rest, we have a lot in common. Someone once said, you know, the more I get to know people, the more I love my dog. <laughs> but it's kind of different with God. He knows about all kinds of people. And he's willing to love on anybody and cleanse anybody who turns to him. I know this for sure. See, for God so loved the world. That he gave, see, this is proof. This is not just a profession of love. It's the ultimate demonstration of love. He gave his, well, I'm sure you got a lot of them, right? Only begotten, one of a kind. Son, not a thing, a son. Why did you do that? That 
You want to hear another all-inclusive word? Whoever. Could you please tell me the person whom whoever leaves out? Please tell me the people group left out by the term whoever. There ain't none that whoever tries hard, makes promises, turns over a new leaf. No, no. Cornelius did better at it than you or I. When it came to living a good life from a human point of view, this guy was exemplary. But you might as well try to build a tower of Babel of good works, trying to extend yourself into the inner recesses of where an infinitely holy God resides. All our good deeds are like filthy rags in an attempt to win access to God. And so he reduced himself in the form of his son and said, stop working, stop laboring, stop trying in your own virtue to be worthy of me. No, whoever believes in him, Jesus, should not perish. There's only two options. Should not perish. What's the other option? But have, possess, experience, enjoy everlasting life. No, God is no respecter of persons. He has no favorites. He will refuse no one who comes to him honestly, uttering a cry for mercy and forgiveness. I know this, you see, but to all who received him, John's gospel says this, to them, to all who received him, to them, he gave the right to become children of God. A child of Shem, a child of Ham, a child of Japheth, irrelevant. They can become a child of God to all who received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those, here it is again, who believe in his name. I tell you this, when we stand before him and stand before him, we shall. Everyone shall. We will not be asked any of the following questions by him. What country are you from? What language do you speak? What is your political affiliation? What is your gender? How much money have you earned? Tell me about the color of your skin. What religion were you born into? I assure you, not a one of those will be asked us by God the Father. Not if, when we stand before him. But I know it'll be something like this. What has been your response to my son? That's the question with which we will have to make do. What has been your response to my son. I tell you, God has no favorites. He offered his son to everyone. And that's why Peter said what he did to him. All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in his name receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That is the proper response to the son of God. Any other 
leaves us in severe eternal jeopardy. I beseech you, render now while it is still called now. Render now the right response to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your uniqueness as an individual notwithstanding, don't hide behind it. Join the crowd of those who have violated God's holy law. You are a sinner, as am I. You need salvation from sin. That is to say, you pay the penalty for it or you let Jesus do it for you. He's more than willing. That is the correct response to the Son. I beseech you. Uh, uh, Jesus is one among equals is not the right response. You take Jesus, another takes Mohammed is not the right response. Jesus was a good teacher is not the right response. Jesus is the one and only Son of God. The only mediator between God and man. Jesus is the Savior, and I choose to make him my Savior. Forgive my sin. My sin. Be my Savior. Let me be in right relationship with you now and forevermore. God has no favorites. <laughs> I stand before you as a saved Jew. There's a saved Lebanese man, <laughs> my friend and brother. We're wonderfully different. There's a saved woman from Russia. We just saw a, new, a newly saved woman be baptized tonight. There's a saved woman from Iran over there. Yes, hallelujah is right. <clears throat> it's great. It's a unity of the faith that is attributable only to Almighty God, and it's proof that he has no favorites. So we, as representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ, dare not have any favorite people group, even our own. We dare not show preference for any particular ethnic group or racial group or gender group or economic group or age group as over against any other. When the Lord Jesus Christ, who existed from before time far and above it all, came down to be among us and one of us and share in a marvelous way in our humanity so that he could wrap his arms around any one of us who would believe on him and snuggle up to God just as Buddy has so well told us about. There's no institution on earth like the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And whenever I think of Caesarea, I do think a little bit about the golf course. But mainly, I think about how an Orthodox Jew <laughs> and uh, an Italian soldier found out they had the same Abba Father. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, may it be said of us as the Church of Jesus Christ that we have no unkind words 
to be shared with reference to another people group, uh, that we cease to engage in uh, racial epithets and humor, uh, which shows disrespect to the diversity of your household. Uh, may it never be said, oh God, uh, that we have a closer allegiance to any ethnicity or gender or, or uh, religious heritage than we do to those who have been similarly rescued and implanted in the body of Christ Jesus. We are family. And the priority loyalty must be to other members of the household of faith, be they descendants of Ham or Shem or Japheth or any other line of descendancy. Thank you for this marvelous evidence of your grand capacity to hold not only the universe together, but diverse peoples together through the power of the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for our magnificently diverse family. We love it, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.